Uh, well, friends, uh, it's so easy to fix things these days, isn't it? Uh, I mean, all you need to do is jump on YouTube and uh, you have access to uh, millions and millions of videos about how to fix things. Uh, when I jumped on YouTube this week, I saw videos that taught me how to, you know, uh, fix a zipper, uh, how to fix a leaking tap, uh, how to fix a sore throat, and uh, on and on it goes. Uh, it's so easy to fix things these days. But how do you fix the world? I'm sure you'll agree that for all the good that we see in the world, it is nevertheless a deeply broken place. Every day we hear of suffering and death and evil, uh, even in our own lives and in our own relationships. There is deep brokenness, and often things are so complicated and intractable that we just don't know how to fix it. Is that true of you, as it is of me? Indeed, uh, this is one of the reasons why many people say they don't believe in the existence of God altogether. Now, have you ever heard people say that God can't exist because uh, if he did, then he would fix things. He would put an end to all the brokenness and the mess that the world is in. But friends, uh, imagine if you could tell God how to fix the world. Uh, what would you say to him? Uh, perhaps you would tell God to get rid of people like terrorists and murderers from this world. Uh, that would certainly make this world a better place. But it wouldn't get rid of all the suffering and pain and evil in this world, would it? Uh, perhaps you could go on and tell God to get rid of people like pedophiles and drug dealers. Uh, again, that would make this world a better place. But still, I'm not sure whether it would fix this world entirely. Perhaps we could keep on going and tell God that he should get rid of the greedy and the selfish in this world. But that would include you and me, wouldn't it? We would be telling God to get rid of us. For if we're honest, we, would, uh, we, we have been people who are greedy and selfish and who have caused misery in the lives of others, haven't we? You see, uh, we have to be very careful about what we ask for from God. Now, uh, we've been looking at the book of Revelation, and uh, we are now on the home stretch. But I, but I want to suggest that what we see in today's passage is a vision of how God will indeed fix this world. For you see, it's not that the Bible is silent on how God will deal with suffering and death and evil. But the whole Bible is a book that deals with what God has done and what God will do one day about all these things. Uh, if you remember last week, we began this uh, final series of seven visions um, that uh, John is given, the Apostle John is given. And uh, we looked at the first three visions last week. And uh, uh, today, as we look at the final four of those visions, I want you to see that uh, this part really deals with the question of how God will ultimately uh, fix this world. Uh, now, in the book of Revelation, we've been reminded that behind the suffering and evil of this world is none other than Satan, who is represented as a dragon. 
Uh, we've been reminded especially, haven't we, that uh, he is the one who is responsible, ultimately, for the suffering and death and evil inflicted on God's people. And so here we see how God uh, deals with Satan himself. Uh, you'll see there, if you uh, just uh, have your Bibles open again, uh, at chapter 20, verse 1, uh, you'll see there that John sees an angel from heaven with a key and a chain in verse 1. Uh, in verse 2, this angel seizes the great dragon, who is Satan, and binds him up. And in verse 3, he throws him into a bottomless pit, which is shut tight for a thousand years, so that Satan can do minimal damage. Uh, now, last week, if you remember, we saw that uh, this 1,000-year period is symbolic for the period between the first and second comings of, of Christ. Uh, do you remember that? Uh, if you were not able to join us last week and you want to know the reasons why uh, I think this about uh, that period, which is often called the millennium, uh, let me encourage you to download last week's talk uh, from uh, the church website and have a listen to it. But here you can see that Satan is presently bound and restrained in this world. Uh, I remember taking my children to the zoo one day uh, to see the world's most dangerous snakes. Uh, you might find it comforting to know that out of the 25 most dangerous snakes in the world, um, 21 of them uh, live on our doorstep uh, in Australia. Uh, one of them is called the Inland Taipan, which can kill, apparently, 100 men with a single drop of venom. Uh, it's the world's most venomous snake, but you know when we saw it at the zoo, there was no problem, you see. Uh, I mean, it looked dangerous, uh, it was dangerous, but because it was behind a thick wall of glass, well, the danger was minimal. Uh, that, that's the kind of image we get here about Satan, isn't it? Uh, he is dangerous, he is, he is capable of doing damage, but he's bound and he's restrained by God. And so his danger is minimal. Now, uh, you might find that a strange thing for the Bible to say. For it does seem, doesn't it, if you sort of look around the world, that rather than being harmless, Satan is doing incredible amounts of damage all around the world. Uh, often suffering and evil seems unbounded and unrestrained in this world. Uh, I wonder whether that's your assessment of what you see. What does it mean that Satan is bound and restrained in the present age that we live in? Uh, well, I think Satan is bound in the sense that he cannot ultimately hurt God's people. He cannot ultimately hurt you. I mean, what's the worst that Satan can do to you if you belong to Jesus? Well, uh, the absolutely worst thing that uh, I can think of is that he can kill you through uh, somebody uh, who he uses. Uh, he can put you to death for your faith in the Lord Jesus. But you see, despite the tragedy of death, if you belong to Jesus, then you know that you will be with God forever in eternity. Uh, you might know the American missionary, Jim Elliott, who died at the hands of uh, 
the very people that he was trying to reach with the gospel uh, in Ecuador. Uh, He is quoted to have said the famous words, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep, that is his life, to gain what he cannot lose, that is eternal life. The Apostle Paul himself said something similar, didn't he, when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I mean, how can you win against people who think like this because they know that in Christ they have everything already? Further, it's as God's people speak the gospel that God's kingdom grows and continues to grow and Satan's power is bound. I mean, don't you find it astonishing that from 12 timid and frightened disciples at the time of Jesus' death, the gospel has now spread to every nation in the world such that today there are literally billions of people who bow the knee to Jesus in every nation under the sun. Now that's why in verse 3 it says that Satan cannot deceive the nations any longer. It's because as the gospel is proclaimed, God opens the eyes of people to the deceit of Satan that they would come to Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And so you can see that Satan is now bound and he's restrained in this world. But in the next vision, John sees the future defeat and final destruction of Satan by God. Uh, And in this vision, you can see a real contrast between the victors and the ones who are defeated. And so firstly, you can see who the real victors are, can't you? Uh, In verse 4, they are the ones sitting on thrones. Uh, A throne is a symbol of rule and authority and judgment. Uh, Who are these people who are sitting on these thrones? Well, you can see if you continue reading that they are the ones who have been beheaded for testifying to Jesus and the word of God. In other words, uh, they are the martyrs, the ones who have remained faithful in identifying with Jesus even in the face of death. Further, it's also the ones who have remained faithful to Jesus by not worshipping the beast and and its image. In other words, they are the ones who have continued to worship Jesus rather than worship false gods in this world through the images that come in this world. It's so true, isn't it, that uh, especially in our day, um, uh, the world is in the grip of idolatry and it largely comes through the images that come to us through TV and computer screens and through social media. Now, uh, this is a complete reversal of what the world thinks, isn't it? I mean, who are the ones that our world considers to be the victors, the winners in this world? Well, it's the rich. It's the powerful. It's the physically strong. It's the beautiful. It's the cultural elite of this world. But no, God says that the real victors are the ones who continue to testify to Jesus in their lives even through suffering. They are the ones who worship God rather than worship the false gods of this age. You can see that they are the victors because at the end of verse 4, 
we are told that they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Again, I don't think this is talking about the end when we will finally be given resurrected bodies. Rather, it's speaking of people who have put their trust in the Lord Jesus now so that we are raised spiritually to life in the here and now. Do you see yourself among the victors uh, in this vision that, that, that John sees? But secondly, you can see the great contrast with Satan, who is the ultimate loser. Uh, in verse 7, after the thousand-year period, uh, notice that Satan is let loose in the world. In verse 8, he is allowed to deceive people from all nations to gather them for one final battle against God and his people. Uh, it does seem, doesn't it, from uh, Revelation, and I don't think this is the first time we've seen it, that things will get worse in this world towards the end. But it's all an anticlimax because in verse 9, as Satan and his army surround God's people to destroy them, well, a great fire comes down from heaven and consumes them. And in verse 10, the devil himself is thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur to be tormented forever. Uh, now, again, remember that Revelation speaks in picture languages and uh, is highly symbolic. And so I don't think this is meant to be understood literally, but it is nevertheless speaking about the great reality that one day Satan himself, who is intent on destroying humanity through his evil lies about God, will himself be the one who is destroyed forever. And so, Satan is presently bound. Uh, his future is destruction. But what is the future for humanity itself? Well, uh, you can see there that the next vision that John has is a vision of the great day of judgment. Uh, you can see it there in verse 11, where John sees a great throne which is the judgment seat of God himself. Uh, it's white in colour, which, uh, as we've seen, is the colour of victory, because God has already defeated Satan. And further, the one who sits on the judgment seat is so holy and righteous that earth and sky, that is, at the present sinful creation, flees before him and his judgment throne. However, notice who is brought before this judgment throne. Uh, in verse 12, it's the dead, as well as those who are alive, both great and small in this world. Uh, in verse 13, it's those who have died at sea, as well as those who are buried in the earth. In other words, this is a picture of all people, whether dead or alive, great or small, being brought before the great judgment seat of God to give an account of their lives. Make no mistake, no one in this world will escape God's judgment. All will be brought to account in the end by God, even if they get away with evil in this life. 
But on what basis will God judge the world? Well, in verse 12, notice that John sees some books being opened. What are these books? Well, it seems that they are books on which God has recorded everything about a person's life. The great theologian Augustine called these books the divine memory. The divine memory. You know, even though you and I forget things that we have done or try to forget very hard the things that we have done in the past, well, God remembers everything so that he can judge on the basis of what we have done. You can see it there at the end of verse 12, can't you? Judgment will be according to what they have done. And again, at the end of verse 13, it is according to what they have done. You can't get any fairer than that. But if we're honest, you can't get any more terrifying than that as well, can it? Uh, I don't know whether you've seen the movie called The Final Cut. Has anyone seen The Final Cut? Um, I don't think it was a very popular movie here. But it's a, it's a movie that has the late Robin Williams in it. And uh, it's set uh, in the dystopian future where every human being uh, has, an, has a memory chip uh, inserted in them which records every action and every thought and every motive of the person for their whole lives. Uh, now, Robin Williams plays the role of the cutter. And uh, the cutter is the person who cuts the video uh, from this memory chip to make a highlight video uh, of the person's life at, at the very end, uh, which is then showed at the, at the person's funeral. Uh, it's a fascinating movie because you, you see the, the ethical dilemma that the cutter faces. For you see, he's seen everything on that memory chip. He knows what this person is really like. And yet, he's under pressure to make a highlight clip which presents the person as a good person, you see. Friends, how will you go before the judgment seat of God on the last day as he opens up those books and judges you and me on the basis of what we have done in our lives? How will some of our MPs fare on the last day as God judges them on the basis of what they have done this week in endorsing the killing of of unborn babies. Uh, if you are anything like me, the very thought of this ought to fill you with dread. For the things I have done and said and thought about all point to a life that in many ways has rejected God and gone my own way. And so I'm deserving of nothing but God's condemnation, which is here portrayed as being thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur. But friends, here's the thing. Uh, in this passage, you can see the good news that there is actually another book, isn't there? 
And those whose names are written in this other book, which is called the Book of Life, will be spared the condemnation of hell. Uh, You can see it there in verse 15, where those whose names are not written in the Book of Life are the ones who are thrown into the lake of fire, and the ones whose names are written in the Book of Life are the ones who are spared. Uh, Who are the ones whose names are written in this Book of Life? Well, Revelation is clear that they are the ones who conquer together with the Lamb who was slain for them. And so if you come down with me to chapter 21, verse 6, chapter 21, verse 6, listen to what God says to the Apostle John. Uh, 21, verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. What does it mean to conquer? Well, as we've seen again and again in Revelation, the one who conquers are the ones who trust in the victory of Jesus for them on the cross, so that they are judged not according to what they have done, but according to what he has done for them. On the cross. And further, the ones who trust in Jesus are the ones who testify to his name and persevere in his ways through suffering and persecution and even death in this world. And so, are you a conqueror in this sense? Have you put your trust in him in this way? Have you turned away from worship of false idols? including yourself, and turn to Jesus as the one who you worship and live for. For the promise is that for those who conquer in this way will be the ones who never have their names blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. Have you conquered? And so uh, what have we seen, friends? Uh, We've seen that Satan is presently bound and restrained Uh, We've seen that his destruction is certain. We've seen the awful judgment day of God when all those whose names are not written in the book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire. But finally, the Apostle John arrives at the end as he is given a vision of a world that is finally fixed. Uh, Now, we're going to see what this new world looks like in in much more detail next week as um, our student minister, Joe, uh, preaches to us. But here we are given a a bit of a glimpse into what this new world will be like for those who have conquered by the blood of the Lamb. Uh, Notice that it's described in chapter 21, verse 1, as something that is brand new. Uh, It's a new heaven and a new earth, it says. Uh, It's a new creation altogether. Uh, It's not simply new in terms of time, but it's new in terms of quality. For in the new creation, one thing that will be missing is Satan and those who belong to him because they have been destroyed forever. And that's why in verse 1 we are told that the sea is no more. Uh, it's because in, uh, because in the Old Testament, the sea symbolized evil and chaos and death. 
which is associated with Satan's work. But now, here, in the new creation, it is no longer. And further, this new world is described wonderfully in terms of an intimate relationship with God himself. You can see it there in verse 2, that it's described as a marriage between Christ and his people. In verse 3, it is described as a dwelling place, or literally a tent. Why a tent? Well, it's because God in the Old Testament dwelt with his people symbolically in a tent, or later a temple. But he kept on saying to his people that a day would come when he would be with his people in a permanent way, forever, in a permanent tent. And here John sees the fulfillment of that wonderful promise. And so this is an extraordinary picture of intimacy and joy and permanence in our relationship with God. And in verse 4 you have that moving picture of God wiping away every tear from the eyes of his exhausted people who have suffered in this world as they enter into the new creation. And so, uh, what are we to do with all this? Uh, Well, it's interesting that we are not told to do anything (laughs) in this vision, uh, other than to behold the vision. Uh, Look at the vision. See what God has in store for you. Uh, In verse 3, John hears a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. In verse 5, he hears the same voice saying, Behold, I am making all things new. In other words, God gives this vision of the new creation to us so that we might live our lives with great and certain hope of what God is bringing in the end. The new creation or heaven is not something that we can create for ourselves. Uh, Our world will never be able to create heaven on earth. It is foolish living our lives with the aim of creating our own heaven on earth. However, we want to define heaven. Rather, the new creation is something that God will one day bring. And so we are to be the people who wait patiently, testifying to the Lord Jesus Christ, even through suffering. We are to be the people who resist the temptations to worship false gods, in this world. For you might have noticed that this passage ends with a serious warning that those who do engage in such worship unrepentantly will not find themselves in the new creation, but the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. We are to be the people who do not behold and live for the present order of things which is passing away but we are to be the people who behold and live for the day that is to come, the new world that is to come, that God will surely bring. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the suffering and death and evil that we see in this world, you are the sovereign king over all who is in control of all things. Father, we thank you that in the death of our Lord Jesus on the cross, 
and his resurrection to new life, you have defeated death and evil. And we thank you that you have promised to soon fix this world in that coming day. But Father, we pray that in the meantime you would restrain suffering and death and evil in this world. Uh, we pray especially this morning for our state MPs in the lower house who voted on the abortion legislation this week. Uh, we thank you for those who stood with the unborn, counting their lives as precious. Uh, we ask for continued courage for those who stand against this legislation as it goes to the upper house in the coming weeks. And we pray for those who voted in favour of the legislation and the killing of human life in the womb, a life that is known and loved by you. Our Father, we pray that you would please open up their eyes to the truth of the gospel through which all things can be seen clearly. Our Father, we thank you that even though we ourselves deserve your just judgment and condemnation because of the things we have done in our lives, but we thank you that you have shown mercy and grace to us who have trusted Jesus with our lives. And so although we do not take pleasure in the destruction of sinners, as you do not take pleasure in the destruction of sinners, we nevertheless long for that day when you will put all things right in this world. And so, Father, we pray for that day to come, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.